All right, Alexander, let's do an update on Ukraine. And uh, I think in this video, we'll probably be very heavy with what is going on, the situation on the ground, at least. Our last video, we talked a little bit more about the economic situation, um, a lot of activity on the ground. And the main focus is Solidar and Bakhmut. The latest reports I'm getting is that the Russian military, they are in the center of Solidar and you have street fighting taking place. And this could mean the very last or close to the very last uh, moments before all of Solidar is uh, taken by the Russians. And Bakhmut as well, there is a lot of activity going on in Bakhmut as well. The Russians continue to take village after village. I don't think we need to get into all the details of of all the villages that, that the Russians are taking, but they, they seem to be moving closer to some sort of, uh, of an encirclement in Bakhmut. There's a couple of other stories that uh, we can talk about. One is connected to Bakhmut, and that is the story about the salt mines. Uh, Larry Johnson at Sonar 21 did a very uh, interesting piece. He wrote an interesting article about the salt mines and how those perhaps are being used, uh, those mines are being used as a way for the Ukraine military to to store weapons, to uh, to move in and out of, uh, of the area, uh, to communicate and to coordinate. And I think that's an interesting uh, thread that we can discuss. And perhaps before we even get started on, on anything with regards to what's going on in Solidar Bakhmut, your thoughts on the story yesterday, the statement actually yesterday, the official statement from the Russian Ministry of Defense that they retaliated against the uh, Makvek uh, uh, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day missile strike, where they claim, according to the Russian Ministry of Defense, an official statement, that they hit these two buildings, two facilities, which were housing Ukrainian soldiers, which had led to the death of 600 Ukraine military. I don't know how they arrived at that number. The Ukraine uh, military, they have put out pictures Hard to confirm these pictures of the of the buildings intact. You're getting a lot of different reporting um, refuting this claim. The story has kind of fizzled fizzled away as well. It's not they're not really talking about it that much on uh, on, on the Russian um, uh, internet channels. So I'm, I'm a little confused with this story. It's, something doesn't no. feel right. But no, it, this was no. an official I statement from the Russian yes. Ministry of Defense. And I think that's what is kind of making me a little uh, a little hesitant to, to go ahead and say this really occurred. But I, I don't know. I can't confirm this. So I, I, I don't know. Now, I can't confirm it either. Obviously, I can't confirm it. And I, I'm going to say straight away, I mean, the Ukrainians have been circulating a picture of a building, which they say is the building that the Russians are talking about, which the Russians claim they um, destroyed. And it it's intact and the Ukrainians say there was nobody actually inside the building and that the Russians missed and that this was all a debacle, which it might have been. I mean, I don't know, but I've heard other reports that there are other pictures, which I haven't seen, by the way, which do show a destroyed building and that that is the actual building that the Russians did, in fact, attack. So, I mean, you know, we're getting the usual story when, uh, you know, conflicting accounts. And um, 
interestingly, when the Russians, when they did suffer real losses from a missile strike on one of their barracks at Makayevka, they've actually came forward. They gave quite a lot of information about it. They confirmed what happened. The Ukrainians never do that. <laughs> so that makes it very difficult to ever confirm or refute properly whatever the Russians say. Now, I said the Ukrainians never do that. I'm just going to give an example. Um, as it happened yesterday, I was reading an article by a journalist called Dimitris Laskaris, and um, he was discussing certain interviews that have been provided by um, Western fighters, you know, volunteers, mercenaries, in other words, who've gone and fought in Ukraine alongside the Ukrainian army. And there was one of them, a man called McDonald, who I seem to remember was Canadian. And he described one particular Russian missile strike or, or he said thermobaric bomb strike, which he said killed 135 Ukrainian soldiers in one go. They're all caught in tents, bomb fell, they're all killed. Most of them apparently were tra young trainee officers. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but bear in mind that's said by someone who's fighting on the Ukrainian side and who was supposedly there. Now, if it's true, and it may very well be true, the Ukrainians have never confirmed it. <laughs> They've never said anything about this. The Russians have made many claims about attacking Ukrainian military formations, launching artillery or missile strikes on Ukrainian formations, causing deaths of hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers at a time. This is one non-Ukrainian source which appears to confirm at least one of those Russian strikes. And Ukraine never said anything about it. So I can't prove that what the Russians are saying is true. But when the Ukrainians deny it, they always deny everything. And <laughs> you can't place much uh, a value or weight on what they say either. So that's that's all I think I can say about this particular incident. I don't think one can draw more more conclusions about this. If the that number of Ukrainian troops were indeed killed as a result of that strike, then that was one of the worst and most powerful missile strikes or artillery strikes that there've been over the course of this war. But it is not by orders of magnitude greater than some of the other missile and artillery strikes that the Russians have claimed in the past. And as I said, we've had one report, as I said, from this man, McDonald, which appears to confirm uh, one example of one. Yeah. All right. I wonder how they would come up with that number as well. Well, well, this is this is the uh, this is the unknown thing. I mean, you know, we have no idea. I mean, do they have internal access? Do they have spies? Who, you know, in in you know the Ukrainian system, keep tabs on statistics. Is it that they just know how many people were in this building and make a guess about the number who were killed? Are they able to monitor Ukrainian communications? And you know. Ukrainians talking about the numbers of people killed. I mean, we just don't know this. And again, it's impossible to speculate, and I'm not going to try. 
Yeah. Okay, let's uh, shift gears and talk about uh, Solidar, Bakhmut. What's going on there? Well, here we are on completely solid ground because we're getting information pouring in now from all kinds of sources and they're all telling us the same story, which is that Ukrainian defences in Solidar are collapsing. Now, Solidar is a town close to Bakhmut. They're part of the same big bigger conurbation. I mean, Bakhmut is a sort of central metropolitan area, but there's lots of villages and towns all around. And together, they form a cluster of urban and industrial settlements. And Solidar is one of the biggest. And it was before the war, it had a population of around 10,000 people, apparently. Uh, Bakhmut had a population population of around 70,000. But the two are very close, and they form part of the same battle. More importantly, Solidar is very much a part of a defense system that the Ukrainians created and created over several years, um, a line, a defense line, which runs from a place called Avdeevka in the south, which is opposite Donetsk, it then goes north through Bakhmut itself, up through Solidar, which is to the north of Bakhmut, all the way up to another town called Siversk, which is the northern limb of this defense line. If Solidar is captured by that, by the Russians, that defense line starts to crumble. The Russians are then in a strong position to complete the envelopment of Bakhmut itself, and they're also in a position to advance north towards Siversk and to cut off the communications to Siversk. In fact, you'd probably start to see the entire defense system start to collapse. Well, that is now what appears to be happening. Over the last couple of days, we've heard that a place called Bakhmutsky, which is not to be confused with Bakhmut itself, it's in effect the eastern suburb of Solidar, that it's been captured. The Russian forces have advanced right into the center of Solidar itself. I've seen pictures of where the Russians are, and they've almost entirely surrounded the Ukrainian troops in that part of Solidar that the Ukrainians themselves control. A German journalist has come forward and said that unless there's a major Ukrainian counteroffensive, Solidar is either lost or the Ukrainian troops who are defending it will indeed be surrounded. And other places near Solidar a place called Podgornoye, another place called uh, uh, Krasnaya Gora. There's reports that some of these places have been captured by the Russians as well. So there is a collapse of Ukrainian defences in Solidar. Even Zelensky has now admitted that the situation there is very difficult. And of course, if you look at Ukrainian channels, I mean, telegram channels, which are not directly affiliated with the Ukrainian government, they are also admitting to the fact that there is a major operational crisis in Solidar. So as I said, the Russians have punched through and Solidar does now look as if within the next few days, probably it is going to fall. Okay, so uh, Solidar is going to fall. We then turn our attention to Bakhmut, and Bakhmut is uh, 
is looking like it's going to uh, to also fall to the Russians. But um, no matter how difficult the situation is, whether it's Soledar or Bakhmut, Elensky uh, continues to uh, to fight and continues to send reinforcements. That's right to those areas, and they continue to get annihilated. So what is going on in Bakhmut, and is perhaps one of the reasons why Elensky refuses to just retreat and to save the lives of, uh, of those Ukrainian soldiers, those Ukrainian men, has to have to do with what Larry Johnson wrote about, and that is the salt mines in yeah. uh, in Bakhmut, very reminiscent of uh, of Mariupol, isn't it? Absolutely, very much so. And can I just say something? I mean, you know, um, this is something that Larry Johnson says. But after Jared Larry Johnson wrote it, and I'm, I'm no doubt this is pure coincidence, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is the head of the... Um, um, the head of the Wagner organization. This is this private army mercenary group, whatever, that is leading the Russian assault in um, Bakhmut and indeed in Solidar as well. He's actually come up, come forward and he's largely confirmed what Larry Johnson is saying, that there is this extraordinary network of tunnels and bunkers. Um, now, it's always been known, in fact, it's famously known, that um, Bakhmut and Solidar, that there are these enormous salt mines there. You go back to the 19th century, there were tourist attractions. People used to come to see them because they were amongst the biggest salt mines in the world. And, um, you know, there were huge, this is a huge complex and, a, you know, large number of underground tunnels and things. And you could presumably build all kinds of <laughs> things there and, you know, have ammunition stores and headquarters and bunkers and all kinds of things. And that perhaps is partly explains the reason why Bakhmut has been so difficult to capture, because the Ukrainians have this network, this underground network of tunnels that they've been able to work through. And on a much bigger scale, by the way, than Mariupol, if, if, if what Prigozhin as well as Larry Johnson is saying is true, and that would that would of course, um, as it explain why this place has been so difficult to capture, and what a disastrous loss for Ukraine it would be, and it is a bit like Mariupol, but on a much bigger scale because I mean you know the tunnels in Mariupol were all under one factory, the Azov-style factory, which is far from being the whole of Mariupol. And um, this network of tunnels, from what we're hearing, is all over Bakhmut. Now, the Russians <clears throat> have captured the entrance to what is apparently the biggest mine of all, which is um, in Solidar. And uh, no doubt they're getting fairly close now to capturing the remaining ones. And it could be, it's quite likely that there will be, if this is true that, you know, once Bakhmut is, the surface area of Bakhmut is taken, there will then be some kind of a battle going on underground to chase out, break down, crush whatever Ukrainian resistance continues in these salt mines. Now, all I will say about this is that this is something so new and it seems, to be honest, so much like 
something out of a you know thriller <laughs> you know huge network of warren of underground tunnels and things that i i would like to see a little more in the way of evidence before i fully went along with it but it's an intriguing story and it might explain as you say why the ukrainians have been clinging on to bakhmut so much because it isn't just that it's an important transport hub which it is it isn't that um you know, Zelensky is keen to, you know, to, he doesn't want to give up a millimeter of territory. It could be because Bakhmut is the most heavily fortified Ukrainian position in the whole of Donbass and perhaps eastern Ukraine. And its loss would deprive Ukraine of an irretrievable asset. So, you know, I, I, you know we'll just have to see. Yeah. Um, is that loss going to happen? Oh, yes, Especially I think given so. what you've been seeing in Solidarity. Uh, yes, I think so. I, I mean, I think that you're absolutely correct. You, uh, Zelensky ha and the Ukrainians have continued continuously to f feed troops into Bakhmut, into this Bakhmut meat grinder, as both sides refer to it. And, I mean, it's been a terrible thing. And I've been reading some harrowing uh, stories about this. I mean, going back to Theodore, uh, sorry, Dimitris Laskaris and his article, uh, another one of these Western volunteer fighters that he spoke about uh, ha had contact with one of the Ukrainian units, that a, a brigade that had been deployed in Bakhmut. By the way, this article by Laskaris came out on the 2nd of January. So it's a, it's a recent article. And he said that nearly all the professional soldiers in this brigade had been killed, including many of the officers, and that the people who had replaced them were raw recruits, and that the soldiers who fought there, who survived, were deeply traumatized by the experience. And yet, Zelensky continues to feed troops into Bakhmut. And I have to say this, I think this has worked to the Russians' advantage. I, I mean, there was talk, if you remember, of, um, a few weeks ago about a big Ukrainian offensive in Zaporozhye. Well, that might still come, but we are seeing being continuously redeployed to Bakhmut and the areas around Bakhmut, troops who had been previously deployed in Zaporozhye, presumably in order to take part in this offensive. So Ukraine is throwing men and machines into trying to hold Bakhmut at almost any cost, and they're being ground down. And what is happening, coming back to the question of whether will Bakhmut fall. Well, there are all these villages. Uh, you know, we could, um, you know, we won't go into the granular detail, but the Russians have been steadily taking them one by one. All of them sit astride the roads that lead into Bakhmut itself. There will come a point where it's not just going to be impossible to keep troops in Bakhmut supplied. To a certain extent, I suspect that's already the case. It's probably becoming increasingly difficult. It's also going to become impossible for those troops to retreat, in which point we will have a Mariupol-type situation. Thousands of people trapped, thousands of Ukrainian troops trapped, and 
they will either have to surrender or fight on till the last, which I hope they don't do, by the way. But one way or the other, I think that short of Western intervention or some big event of that kind, the outcome of this now is no longer in doubt. Yeah, there is talk about uh, Ukraine mounting some sort of uh, an offensive in the direction of Ugladar. And yeah. uh, I, I'm just not sure if, uh, if this is meant more as a, as a way to perhaps try and distract from Bakhmut. Yes. Or if, uh, if this is really uh, a Ukraine offensive meant to, meant to gain ground. I mean, it seems like everything now has focused in on this one town, this one area, and everything else that's being done is is in my opinion being done to either distract from this situation or to to complement this situation in Bakhmut. And so I, I just I don't know about the reports about some sort no. of offensive in Ugladar, perhaps, no. but I just don't know how serious of an offensive, especially given the fact that Sudovikin he's 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 made the defensive lines of of Russia pretty pretty tough. I mean, he's really uh, beefed them up. So I just don't. I don't know where Ukraine can go at this moment in time. Well, I completely agree with that. And I would add, by the way, he hasn't just beefed up the defences. And I mean, you know, you see all these pictures now of these incredible fortified lines that um, the Russians have been creating in all sorts of places. But of course, there's an awful lot more Russian troops now fighting than were fighting, say, two or three months ago, because we've had hundreds of thousands of reserves, reservists called up, tens of thousands of them have already been deployed. I think a Ukrainian offensive from Vugladar is going to run into an extremely stiff resistance from the Russians. And I, I think it will probably be broken and without any significant redeployment of Russian forces from Bakhmut. But I think you're probably right. I think this probably is intended to try to get the Russians to, you know, to, to, to ease off on Bakhmut. And I'm going to make a guess, a speculation, that pretty much everything that we've seen in Ukraine since August may have been about that, ultimately. You know, the Kharkiv offensive, the Kherson offensive, all of the other things that Ukraine has been doing. Well, there were multiple agendas being followed. We've discussed, you know, the PR agendas, but maybe also it was intended to try and get the Russians to ease off the pressure on Bakhmut, which perhaps is the main, the main, the really key battle, the really decisive one. I mean, you know, one day we will no doubt find out the answers to all of these things. But I think that might very well, that might have been the case. And it does seem to me to be the case with Vugladar. Now, I would one add one point about Vugladar. Vugladar is connected in some way to the fighting in Bakhmut because I said that there was this Ukrainian defense line lying from Avdivka, which is this major con it's a, it's a town of about 30,000 people near Donetsk, where the major Ukrainian forces located near Donetsk city are based. So there's Avdivka. Further north, there's Bakhmut, then there's Solidar, then there's Sivetsk. That's the line. Now, the supply routes to some of the Ukrainian forces opposite Donetsk 
particularly near places like Marinka, pass through Vugladar. So it could be that because the Ukrainians are also losing ground there as well, that you know they've essentially lost Marinka, they've been pushed back in all sorts of other places near Donetsk. That the pressure that the Ukrainians are trying to create around Vugladar is not so much connected with the fighting in Bakhmut, but it's an attempt to try to re- retrieve the situation in the fighting around Donetsk as well. These are complicated things, and I don't have a simple answer. And we will see whether or not there is a Ukrainian offensive. If there is, then I think, as I said, the resistance it will run into will be enormous, and I suspect it will fail. Yeah. Uh, Final thought, question, Marinka, Solidar, Bakhmut. How does uh, the Alensky regime cover up these losses? How does the collective West media cover up these losses? You mentioned the German reporter. I think you're talking about uh, the Bild reporter, if I'm not mistaken. Julian, Julian, Julian Um, Redger, whatever his name is, yes. Julian Robske, yeah, I mean, super pro-Ukrainian. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He can't cover it up. No. Uh, how, how, how do these people cover up the fact that the entire defensive line in, uh, in Ukraine has, uh, in, the, in uh, the Donbass, has completely collapsed? And what yes. does that do to the uh, unity of the, uh, the Europeans? Because I, I won't say the United States, I'd say the Europeans, the European Union. What does that do to shake their confidence and uh, and their narrative over the past six months, nine months, which is that Ukraine is winning and Russia is losing. I mean, that's that's been the dominant narrative in the collective West and among the European leadership. Uh, yeah. Ukraine will win. Ukraine is winning. Russia is losing. Russia is suffering heavy losses. Ukraine has more tanks now than when it started the conflict. I mean, all of these things, and all of a sudden, the entire the entirety of Donbass collapses. I know. All of it. He- you're absolutely right. Now, how, do you, how do you cover that up? You can't. Now, can I just say about that German journalist, as you absolutely rightly say, he is super pro-Ukrainian, but he's, in fairness to him, one of the very few journalists in the Western media who does actually from time to time report Ukrainian problems and defeats. Mm-hmm. And pro- so, I mean, he, he is the exception that proves the rule, because I was reading through the British media, for example, this morning, and, you know, we're, we're talking about this battle in Solidar, we're talking about the battle in Bakhmut, we're talking about the progressive collapse of Ukrainian defences. You wouldn't know anything about that <laughs> from the media here. I mean, the only thing they're reporting, they're, they're reporting two things. Firstly, a uh, um, the fact that Zelensky has said that the Ukrainians are still holding on in Solidar, even though the situation there is very difficult. But that doesn't give you the impression that a, a collapse is underway or, or, or give you any real feeling of the extent of the crisis there. And the other thing they're talking about is uh, from the British Ministry of Defence is what the Russian new Russian fighter jet, the Sukhoi 57, is doing. So, I mean, it's completely not about the actual fighting that is actually going on. Now, media in other countries, the American media, tends to be a little bit more forthcoming. But overall, they have not prepared the Western public for a Ukrainian collapse in the Donbass. And I saw a report, by the way, 
again, I can't confirm this, but that 80% of the combat formations, the, 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 the units of the Ukrainian army that are trained and capable of effective sustained combat, that they're all concentrated in Donbass and in this area of eastern Ukraine. So, you know, if there's a collapse here, we are, it seems, going to look at a major crisis. It's going to compromise Ukraine's ability to continue the war. I don't know how they cope with that. I'm going to make a guess. I think a reign of silence will prevail. I think we'll get a few reports about this here and there, but I think they will try and move on to the next topic, even as, because these people, as we've discussed many times, have no reverse gear even as they try to build up some kind of Ukrainian replacement force in Ukraine's western regions. We've seen dribbles of Bradley fighting vehicles, Marder fighting vehicles being supplied. There's talk about tanks and all that sort of thing. It's already exposing divisions. So, you know, one day Poland says it's prepared to provide Leopard 2 tanks, and then it comes back and says, well, we can only provide symbolic numbers. Next day, Germany, there's discussions in Germany, and apparently there's discussions in Germany about doing it. And now the German government has come out and said, well, actually, we've no plans to do it. And you're starting to see more and more people in Europe starting to have doubts about this, but doubts that they're still afraid to express. If there is a Ukrainian collapse in Donbass, then I think, you know, the whole political situation changes. I saw an opinion poll that said 49% of Germans opposed sending weapons to Ukraine, tanks and things like that to Ukraine, as opposed to only 40% who supported it. I think if there's a collapse in Donbass, you're going to see all those doubts intensify and then you'll going to start seeing serious NATO splits appear. But, you know, we're not there yet. They're going to try and pull every lever that they can to try to prevent a collapse in Donbass. You know, expect to see before long, you know, the human rights agencies, the humanitarian relief agencies, they're going to rush. They're going to say that there's humanitarian crisis here. We must have the ceasefire. We must do all of these things. We can have calls to Putin from Schultz and Macron, all of those people saying, you know, we also need a humanitarian ceasefire. They're going to be all those kind of things. And that's what you must prepare. We must prepare ourselves for if this this collapse that we're seeing in Donbass accelerates, uh, which I predict it will. Just like Mariupol. I just like, just like Mariupol. Mariupol. All the human exactly. rights groups are all going to go in there. All of the, the media is yeah. going to, uh, to talk about yeah. the, the Russian war crimes and the violations taking place in Azov style, in, in Bakhmut salt mines, but as they were talking about in Azov style, where they did these really slick uh, photo spreads of, of the, the Azov guys and they, they lionized the, the yeah. NAZI guys and you know yeah. talk about feature films and... Yeah, you two giving concerts in the subway of uh, of Kiev. All of these things are going to yeah, yeah. 
They're going to resort and, to all of these things. All yeah. of these things. And, and the intention will be to embarrass the Russians into ordering ceasefires uh, and having prolonged ceasefires, which will allow, allow the Ukrainians some chance to reorganize and the West to re-equip them. And this is, by the way, an issue which um, is a sensitive issue amongst uh, the Russian military because Putin has a habit of ordering ceasefires from time to time. He just did it over Christmas. And the Russian military don't like it when he does this. They were very angry with him, as I very well remember, during the siege of Aleppo, when he did it repeatedly. And I think if he does start consenting to ceasefires like that, there is going to be a very, very big pushback in Moscow. But anyway, expect to see all of that because it's coming. Well, in Mariupol, uh, I mean, there were the uh, the humanitarian corridors, but I believe that was way at the beginning of, uh, of what right. was going on in Mariupol. I believe towards the actual encirclement, um, there were no. Yes. I mean, Putin didn't cave to any of the no of the NGOs no. or the or the human rights groups or those types of demands. I, I don't. I, I agree, and I don't think serves me right. Yes, I think I, you're, he's you're still firm there. You're absolutely right. And I think he's going to do this again, actually. I think that, as I said, he's probably learned his lesson by now, that when he announces ceasefires, he doesn't get any thanks for them. All he gets is that they pocket the other side pockets his ceasefires and turn them to, his, to their own advantage. So I don't think he's going to do it this time. He didn't really do it over money, you, Paul. And, I don't, and this is, to be very clear, the events that we are now seeing look like they're on a much bigger scale than Mariupol. I mean, Mariupol was one place. This is the whole of what's left of Ukrainian-controlled Donbass, which is now at issue. Um, and I don't think he's going to. Uh, I don't think he's going to consent to these ceasefires or humanitarian or or, 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 or or humanitarian corridors or all of these things on this occasion. And as I said, the military will be arguing very strongly against them. And I think the Russian military. And I think that. Um, this time he will listen to them. Yeah. All right. We'll end it there. I wonder if Zelensky is uh, scared about getting regime changed out after all of Donbass collapses. Well, that's a very good question. I would. I, I've long since given up trying to get into Zelensky's mind. I think that it's. Uh, Impossible for no, I, me to do. I mean, I what what he's thinking I, on any particular day, if he's thinking at all. I, I mean, I really can't fathom action. Now, the only reason I bring that up, the only reason I say that is because you we reported on this in a video we did last week, is because you have all of these secondary characters now making all of these statements and speaking to the press, like the military intel chief, uh, Budano, Budano, I believe is his name. Absolutely, yeah, you, you seem to have these guys which. You never heard of about three months ago, and all of a sudden, they're 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 giving all of these uh, these press statements, and they're talking to the media, and they're strategizing, and you're like, who's this Danilov guy? Where did where did this guy come from? Where, Absolutely, there's a whole bunch of names now that were hidden, and all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, they're they're, they're the they are, they are in, So in my mind, are, I'm like, something's something's up. They, they are indeed the other the other big clue, and I mean I remember we talked about it when it happened was there was that very bizarre interview that he gave a couple of weeks ago to French television, and I mean he did come across to me as a person who's losing touch with reality and who's very much at the end of his, at the end of his tether. I think he went to the U.S. hoping he'd come back with 
massive arms and all kinds of things. That was probably his hope. And I think, you know, with events in Bakhmut taking the direction they are, um, he's probably he's probably very worried at this moment. But as I said, he's a difficult person to read. I suspect that like a lot of people in his position, he goes through periods of euphoria, periods of depression. He's probably very frightened. But and at the end of the day, I have to say this. I mean, his fate cannot be <laughs> our, major in, our major point of interest. I mean, there's an awful lot more going on in this very much bigger, wider tragedy than Ukraine. And he's only one part of it. Okay, thedurantlocals.com. Look for us on Rockfin as well and go to the Durant shop. 10% off. Use the code good day. Take care.